Well, let's do take our Bibles and let's find Philippians. You're there by now. You should have a finger and an eye on Philippians 1. We're not done unpacking that chapter yet. And last week, Travis unpacked verses 12 through about 20. And he made it Windex clear for us that it's not the details that matter, but the results. And I say that in light of the context of the passage. That may not be true in every situation. But in this context, 12 to 20, Paul's imprisonment, uh, the progress of the gospel, he made a very valid observation that it's the result that Paul was after. He wasn't so concerned about the details. And that result was that Christ would be magnified. Say those three words with me. Christ would be magnified. Four words. This was for Paul the bottom line, non-negotiable aim. It's what he was after. Now, I don't think that's necessarily startling to you. In light of the text, you'd probably say, well, Todd, it's the Apostle Paul. And so, so you're not surprised that Travis would, would share that. That whether by life or death, Paul's aim was Christ magnified. I think what I do find startling, though, is that Paul, in the text, and Travis led us through this, considered his situation a win-win. Like most of us don't think about life and death as a win-win. We think about it as a win-lose. But Paul never said that. He said clearly that whether by life or by death, if Christ is magnified, that's a win. So Paul considered it a win-win situation. I think that is what's startling. That no matter how it would be accomplished, Paul knew Christ would be magnified. In other words, there was no way around the inevitable result of Christ being magnified. And so it's this win-win mindset that I want to look further into because that's what's expounded in verses 21 to 26. It's really an, a further explanation of the phrase that ends verse 20. Are your eyes on that verse? When Paul says, whether by life or by death. Paul now is going to take some time to explain what those two scenarios would look like. What I think, in his mind, was a win-win situation. So let's read the text together. I'll unpack it for you. Then we'll make some personal application. And be praying the whole time the Holy Spirit will just illuminate our minds and change our lives. So verse 21, Paul follows up the phrase in which he says, whether by life or by death, with this next phrase. Look with me. For me to live is Christ. You should associate the word live in verse 21 with the idea of life in verse 20. Okay? And now he says to die is gain. You should associate die in verse 21 with death in verse 20. You see, he's continuing now to unpack what does this look like for Christ to be magnified in these two ways. Both are a win. Here's how they both play out. So I would say verse 21 is like your thesis statement for this next paragraph, 21 to 26. I'm getting a little bit of a ring, by the way, on this mic. I don't know if you hear it, but it's just kind of ringing a little much. 
So 21 is the thesis statement. And now he explains them, or we could say unpacks them a little more. Verse 22. Now, if I live on in the flesh, that's the idea of living in Christ or living for Christ or the idea of life in verse 20. Are you following the progression here? If I live on the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. Now he's thinking back to his choice between what two things? Say it with me. Life and death. So he explains that life would be living on in the flesh. It's fruitful work. And yet I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the Two being what? Life and death. I long to depart and be with Christ. He's now explaining what? Death. And he says that's far better. So he has a, a short interlude between verses 22 and 24 in which he explains the part about death. Really, verse 22 is about the life and 24 is about life. It's just a small little phrase about death. He says it's far better. It's being with Christ. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this. Now, what does this refer to? This would refer to what's necessary. So when you have like pronouns or certain words that need an antecedent, you look back. You say, what's this referring to? It's referring to what is more necessary. Since He's persuaded of this. I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So I'm going to ask you a question, class. We'll say more in the few, next few minutes, but what did Paul say when he looked at his options of what? Life and what did he say would happen? Based on this verse, life. He says, it's necessary to remain, so I know that I will. So I think even though he's torn between the two, he realizes the decision is, I'm going to stay right here for your joy and progress in the faith. He's persuaded of this because of the necessity of it. Verse 26 says that as their faith progresses and their joy increases, he says in verse 26, so that because of my Coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. So something happens because of their um, progress and joy. Their boasting increases or deepens or widens. So what you have here really are the two pictures or scenarios of what it looks like for Christ to be magnified if he dies or Christ will be magnified if he lives. Paul considers both a win. And can I just be really frank with you here? I think there are a few people who think this way. They are usually older. They often are suffering from an incurable disease, a terminal illness. I'm not saying there aren't younger folks who think this way, but in my informal experience and research, few people who are really healthy, and, and engaged and seeing, even seeing God work in their life, very few actually consider death a win. I think we would answer in a setting where it's theologically, you know, accurate to say the right answer. We would say, of course it is. But if you were to press a finger in their chest in a corner and say, really? You'd rather die right now? They'd probably say, well, not right now. 
And it depends on how I got to die. I mean, they had all these modifications to that answer, right? Just most people don't consider death like, oh, that, that's a win for me. There are a few. I met some at first service or some in this service. So I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I think you would agree with me if in, 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 in a moment of honesty, most people don't consider death a win. Would you? I think you would. That's just not how we think as humans. In fact, it's kind of natural for your first instinct is for survival. When you're gasping for air, you look for air. When you feel like something's uh, on the horizon is dangerous, you try to avoid it. You try to solve it. So it's not wrong. We're not trying to necessarily say that this is a sin. We're saying that it's just not normal for Paul's language to resonate with us easily. Like, oh yeah, that's as easy preaching, Todd. Death's a win, sure, life's a win, whatever you want to do. That's just not the average person's thinking. So this is a difficult text to get up under because we do like the details. Paul is saying, no, the, the real issue is the result. Christ being magnified. That's what matters, whether by life or by death. Now, let me unpack the life and the death part for you a little more. We clearly see the text simply unfolds more of that. I'll start with the second one, which is the death one. Why are we starting there? It's the shortest. It's sandwiched between verses 22 and 24. It's really verse 23, isn't it? In which he describes death, which, by the way, he says is gain in verse 21. So I would circle the word die in verse 21, circle the word gain in verse 21, draw a line down to verse 23 where it says this is far better and then draw a line to where it says he'll be with Christ. That's how Paul sees this idea of death as gain, because it's far better. I'm with Christ. It solves everything. I'm no longer torn. I think what's in Paul's head is this, visible presence with Christ. There's no more need for faith at that moment. You'll be done with sin's presence. There'll be no temptation like immortality, heaven, all those things that he's been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about, to preach about, that will happen for him. So he says, that's a gain. It's far better. He's with Christ. Are you following me? That's how Paul describes the first way in which he could see Christ magnified. Let's give this a word, shall we? Let's just give it the word glorification. That's kind of a fancy theological word, but it does describe what happens when you die, at least the beginning of it. It is a staged thing theologically because your body will be raised from the dead at, when Christ returns, and then your body will receive a glorified body. And you'll exist eternally with that glorified body. That won't occur till Christ returns but it doesn't mean you're not enjoying heaven even before that and you're not with Christ because Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So though glorification has some stages to it, it does begin the moment you close your eyes in physical death. But I would remind you, you as a Christian will never actually know death. Your body will, but you will never actually die. John 11, he that believeth in me, will never die. So your body will quit working, but your soul and your spirit will then be in God's presence and you will live like you've never lived before because you will be with Christ 
in heaven, your physical tent removed, all of the baggage of that gone. So perhaps in this room even now, there may be those who, when you walked in, weren't thinking death was game, but you're like, hey, I'm almost there, Todd. I'm getting closer. I can see why Paul said it's far better. Just know that in the text, that's Paul's understanding of how Christ would be magnified in his death. And he says it's far better. That's a win for Paul. But he spends more time on the when aspect of if he were to stay alive. A song is coming to mind there. He says that to live is Christ. Now, I'll be frank with you. I find that a, as an odd sentence. Like, I often don't describe a situation with a person's name. Like, I don't say, oh, man, working for his family is Travis. That would be weird, wouldn't you? It would be. We, we describe things with other words. But Paul here says, and most of us don't have the courage or even the, perhaps the, um, maybe the stupidity to sometimes just say, that sounds weird to me. But I want to say to you, I think that's, I've learned the verse. You've learned the verse. We have it in our houses. It's a verse that we post on the walls. But what did Paul mean when he personalized his existence? He said, for me to live is Christ. Like, here's what I think is going on. Paul is saying he's consumed and centered on Christ. Watch this. If he's saying that his death would have been presence with Christ, I think he's saying now with his life, he's completely at Christ's disposal. He's under Christ's direction. Everything about his life centers on and is consumed with Christ. That's what his sense is if he stays alive, that his entire sense of living is all about Christ. Now, fortunately, he defines this further in the text. So you have your pen handy. Notice how he explains this, much like he did with the idea of dying as gain. It's far better to be with Christ. He says some further things about living for Christ centered on Christ, being completely at Christ's disposal under his direction. He says initially in verse 22 that this is fruitful work for me. Do you see that? I circle that phrase, draw a line back to the word live in verse 21. In other words, Paul knows there's still activity, there's still work, there's ministry service that he has from God. He's got to do some things. There's energy there's service. Here's the word you could not put in here. Couch. Lazy boy. Remote. Like those words don't go. Paul's saying, if living is the way that God will be magnified, Christ will be highly honored. If that's the way, then it means fruitful labor. It means a rewarding, impacting life of service. Investment. Activity. Paul wasn't thinking it means I'm headed three years down to the beach. I'm not against the beach. He wasn't thinking I'm going to spend the next decade in the mountains. I'm not against the mountains. I'm just saying to you, Paul understood that if he was alive, it would mean activity and service for God because his life was consumed with Christ. So I'm not asking how you draw your paycheck. 
And can you retire from that? I think all of us, it's not sinful to say, at some point, I'll quit working as a way to drive income to pay my bills. You don't have to work anymore. That's not a sin. But do I think it's a sin to be lazy? I do. And so one should never say, you know what? I'm going to cease to to do anything for God. I'm just going to veg out. That's a sin. That's terrible. That's an awful idea. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's saying here. Like his life is consumed with Christ at Christ's disposal. If he stays alive, that's what it's all about. He gives some further definition and description. Look at verse 25. He says this fruitful work involves, and I think it's probably more than just a portion. It's probably the complete sense is that it's, he's working his labor. His fruitful work is that there. Uh, this, this body of believers is going to see progress and joy in the faith. In fact, you should underline all the second person pronouns in this text. Because once he realizes that what's necessary is to stay alive and to help them, it all becomes about them. Notice in this verse, your progress and joy in the faith. That's what his fruitful labor will lead to. I think this is restated in the next verse. Look at verse 26 so that your boasting in Jesus Christ may abound. In both of these instances, Paul is saying, if staying alive means fruitful labor, I want my labor to be all about your growth and and your progress and your joy. In other words, Paul is saying this, that for him to to remain, that would be an others-centered existence. That's how he would be confident that Christ would be magnified. Don't lose the train of thought here. Verse 20, Christ will be magnified. It's a confident statement. Whether by life or death. If it's death, it's a gain. I'm with Christ. It's far better. He'll be magnified. If if I'm alive, then I'm going to be involved in fruitful labor that results in your joy and progress so that you can have an abounding boasting. In Christ. Now, I want you to follow me on something because this is a loop, I think, that sometimes we miss. Paul says that his work, his fruitful labor for their joy and progress would result in a, an abounding boasting. Some of your translations say rejoicing. I prefer boasting. It's not even from the word joy. These are two different words. Boasting has the idea of glorying in something, of resting in something outside of yourself, of putting all of your credit in something that weighs heavily on you. You're pointing to something else like this is why. And Paul is saying here, he wants them to have a posture in which they point and they give credit and they glory in Jesus Christ. And he wants that to be abounding and to grow and to increase, to widen, to deepen. What kind of posture is that? I would say it's a posture that says, I want Christ to be magnified. It's not about me. I'm not trying to gain credit here. I want my boasting to be all about Jesus Christ. What was the attitude that Paul said in verse 20 was the the main issue, the main aim, Christ being magnified? I think the loop is this. He's saying, if I'm to stay alive, which he says is more necessary and I will do, The end game of that is that you will also join me in this boasting in Christ so that he's magnified. 
You follow that? It's like this loop. Like, I'm, I'm alive. It's necessary for me to help you grow in your faith because I want you to have the same posture as me to see Christ magnified. So Paul is moving the church to this unified posture where we say it doesn't matter if it's life or death. If Christ is magnified, if my boasting is all about Jesus, if he's lifted up, that's a win. Yeah, did it happen by death? That's a win. Did it happen by life? That's a win. When Christ is magnified, it's a win. That's really the point of Paul's few verses here. Let's give this last one a word, can we? If the first part was glorification, I think Paul here is really speaking about edification. I think that's really what he's saying he will focus on. If I'm to stay alive, I'm gonna focus on edifying you so that you will have the same attitude as me that Christ is magnified. So there we see the two win-wins, don't we? That flow out of verse 20. Travis laid it out for us. It's the result, not the details. The result is Christ being magnified, whether by life or death. And Paul said, if it's death, that's glorification. That's a gain. That's a win. If it's life, it's edification. It's an others-centered approach to, to expending energy and activity. So this is an understanding of the text that I think helps us see how Christ is magnified. If it's in death, it's through glorification. And if it's through life, it's through edification. Now, I don't think this really blows you back either. If I can just be that transparent with you. I don't think you expected me to approach the platform and teach these verses and, and say something different than what the Bible says. This is what the text says. So you're, you're not blown back by this. No one's sitting in their chair with their hair, like, whoa, I had no idea, Todd. No, you probably did. You can read the verses. I just expanded them. I've explained them. But, but you knew that in the, the day, death is a gain and life is a gain. Like these are win-wins and we should use them to magnify Christ. Here's where I think you may be blown back though. Here's where the punch in the passage is because it punched me in the gut about a week and a half ago. I'll explain that a little more later, but here's the punch of the passage. Here's where I think you will find your hair being blown back. When Paul tells us why he is staying alive, staying alive, I think we just go ahead and sing it, right? When Paul tells us why he's doing that, he says this, I'm just going to read it for you to make sure we hear the, the words of the text. To remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And so since I am persuaded of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with all of you. Now, these are the same words used back in verse 20 when he said, I know Christ will be highly honored. Now, when he views the situation and he's torn between life and death, what gives him the confidence and the knowledge that, you know what? Life it is. It's not that he's got some great vacation planned. It's not that he wants a few more years for his retirement to grow his IRA account to get bigger. 
He sees a church who's in need, and he says, you know what? What's better for you is more necessary than what's better for me. So this is when I began to get blown back. I was driving over to Michigan to see Julie's mother and her family for Father's Day. We were together, and you know, when you're driving together, sometimes you, know, you talk, sometimes you listen to podcasts, or you read, and I was just thinking through some of these verses. I had my notes out a little bit, kind of checking them out. And, and I began to think, wow, that's, that's, a, that's, that's one super pastor. That's one super missionary. He could say, when I look at the landscape and I see the needs, you know what? It's more necessary for you that I just stay here and remain, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to give up. And this is really what Paul said in the most textual way. I'm going to give up the gain of death to serve others with my life. That's what Paul said. And you can think that sounds weird, but that's the text. I'm going to give up the gain of death, the far betterness of death, to live in the trenches with you. Because that's more necessary. That blows me back. You know why? Because few people think that way. I know that I struggle with that as a husband sometimes. I can hardly put my wife ahead of my own needs when she needs a last minute errand. And I'm involved in a game or a project. I'm like, I got to stop what I'm doing right now to run and get some milk? I mean, that's a struggle. Paul says, you know what? I'll give up the gain of death being with Christ because you need this. I mean, I don't think I'm alone in rowing that boat. I'm looking for some guys to kind of give me some nods here. Uh, ladies, you're not exempt. Can we all admit we just have a, a bent towards selfishness? See, remember that instinct of survival I told you about? That that's not sinful, it's natural, that we... We will look for air. We'll look for safety. Like That's just how we're made. We, we don't want to necessarily die. That same thing is true, though, even spiritually, emotionally, relationally, that often when you feel threatened, like you're not going to get your way, you fight back at that, and you try to find a way to get your way. Begin to leverage, manipulate, instead of just simply serving or sacrificing. I'm not preaching at you with a pointed finger. I'm telling you, this is what was happening on that drive. I think we were somewhere just shy of South Bend. I'm like, man, I'm a far cry from pastoring like Paul. Technically, he was a missionary, I know, a church planter. But this is where the whole kind of, he planted this church, was with them, and then he wrote back, they were his most supporting church. He loved them greatly. I thought, God, here this guy is, what a what beautiful posture of a pastor, of a church planter to his people. And I'm like, I'm a, I'm a million miles from that. I mean, I just began to really experience a, a boatload of conviction. So I suspect you're probably in that same boat right now. Maybe not in the sense of pastoring and like to a flock, but in your arena, you're thinking, yeah, sacrifice is hard. Selflessness is hard. Like This is not an easy road to walk to where you would strive to to put others ahead of yourself. I remind you, this is a theme of the book. As chapter two unfolds, in chapter three and four, we're gonna hear him say things like, consider others more important than yourself. 
We're going to hear him say to these two ladies, agree with each other. Here, Paul, I think, is laying groundwork with his own example by saying, I could have gone to be with Christ. But when I look at what's happening, it's much more necessary that I stay. So I'll do that. And by the way, he's not saying this with some kind of frowny face, you know, pouty mentality. Okay, uh, you got me. I'll stay put. That's not the sense here. It's one of confidence and joy that he gives to give his life into fruitful labor so that they too will model his posture of, of his wanting Christ to be magnified. Let me share with you briefly also while I was driving and having these thoughts, it reminded me of a something I heard as a kid. And I think some of you have heard this. I was surprised at the 830 crowd how few had heard it. But this is the text, I think, that roots an equation I heard as a kid. It's this equation here, that joy comes from living with these ordered priorities. Jesus, others, and you. Will you say that with me? Jesus, others, and you. Now, I would hear that and but to be honest with you, as a kid, I'd get really guilty. Like, oh man, here we go again. They're going to pound this into me. Could somebody give me a verse for this? And to be frank with you, I never heard a verse for it. No one would ever say, based on this verse, you should live this way. I didn't want to argue it because it sounds like really spiritual to say that, right? Like, oh, that's that. But I never could get someone to a verse. Well, guess what? We got a verse, people. Philippians 1, 21 to 26, in which Paul says, when I look at the situation, it's more necessary for me to remain and be here with you for your joy and progress of the faith. So I will stay alive. That's a Jesus, others, and you mentality. He wanted Christ to be magnified at all cost. His win one was life or death. He realizes life is the most necessary choice for the church, and so he chooses life, and it's a joyful, deliberate choice for him. So I'm just thankful that I now have a verse to back up what I heard for 55, 60 years, right? Jesus, others, and you. That is the pathway to joy. We could say it a little more theologically, though. So here's six words that would not only be the same thing in a more seminary-esque fashion, but actually gives you the, a, a little more robust flavor of the text. I'm going to word it to you in the past tense. Here's why. We always start with this. What did the author intend to say to the audience? We always start there. And often in our church, we get there, and then we kind of present tense that to apply it. But today, I just want to keep it in the past tense because it's going to shake you a bit. You're going to hear these words and like, whoa, is that really true? But this is what the text says to us. And our job is to get up under it and let it just change us. Here's what the text says in six words. Christ magnified, others edified, Paul satisfied. Uh, back up to verse 20. What was Paul's one aim? His eager expectation and confident hope that Christ will be magnified. Whether by life or death. He realized life was the best way to see that happen. And his life would be all about edifying others, their joy and progress in the faith so that they have a, a boasting posture about Christ. The point is, when those two things happen, we have to surmise then, Paul was satisfied. 
because Christ was magnified. And the way that occurred was through others being edified. So the text plainly lays out for us this flow. Say it with me. Christ magnified, others edified, Paul satisfied. Now, I could switch the words up. We could change this to a present tense. We could apply this and say something like, I'm satisfied when, I, when others are edified and Christ is magnified. That wouldn't be wrong. But I think, it, uh, I, I want you to enter into a, a moment in which you just let this past tense, st- I don't want to say story, this past tense historical account of Paul's struggle. He was torn, remember? I want that to sit on you a bit. And I want you to think with me like, wow, that's how Paul lived. That Christ be magnified, that others be edified. And when those two things occurred, he was satisfied. And I find that very, um, it, it causes me to stop in my tracks because I feel a million miles away from that. Do you? You probably do. This is what I was going through on that ride to see my mother-in-law. I don't know if Julie really was aware of it, but I was like, man, I got, I got a lot of work to do as a pastor, as a church planter. Because sometimes I do ask myself, well, what's in this for me? Or how will this work out for us? What's the end game if, if this happens? Well, I don't, I don't want to do that then. I have moments where I'm selfish. Desires creep in that I hope no one ever finds out about. I'm like, oh. And then I read this and I'm like, not only do I not want to die right now, <laughs> I realize I, this is a pastoral posture, a planter posture that, man, it, it chops me at the knees. As that was going on, can I just share with you a little more about this convicting journey? And I don't normally bring my own stories into messages. I do sometimes, but they're usually, if you can laugh at me, it's about the only time I bring one in. And that may happen in this moment, I don't know. But I intentionally want to bring a little bit of of, uh, insight into maybe some things that have happened to me in a good way to let you understand more about why this passage just resonated so deeply with me and why I just recommitted, even in the car that day, like, God, I, I really want to be this kind of planter and pastor. And trust me, I'm not saying I'm some Apostle Paul at all. I'm just saying this passage spurred my affections for Jesus and for obedience to what he calls us to do, for him to be magnified. So as we were driving, I was thinking about this relationship between Paul and the Philippian church, and I was under some conviction, like, man, that's it. Paul is just like, you know, he's like the man. I mean, I... Who can keep up with that? Who can even attain to that? Like, this is impossible. It seemed like an impossible goal. And so it was kind of under that weight. The Lord said, Todd, remember, it's not that you have to do this in your own power. Like, I called you to this. Like, I'm going to empower you. My spirit lives within you. And I thought about the day I, I knew God had called me to preach. It's a, um, it's a very solidifying moment for me. And I can't always explain that well, but I was about 13 or 14 sitting under the balcony at my home church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, sitting next to my youth pastor. And we're in a very large church. Uh, and so our pastor was speaking. He was 
a good ways away. You had to kind of look under the balcony, up on the platform, but we could see him. And in that moment, at the end of that service, it was a Wednesday evening. All I know is I heard the Lord through the Holy Spirit and the word of God. I heard the Lord say to me so clearly, give your life to preaching the Bible. Teach my people my word. It was so compelling. It's hard to explain, but I just said, I'll do that. I didn't argue. I didn't analyze. I didn't even have a thought that I had an option. Like this was God speaking. So I said, sure. Now in our environment, the way you relayed your decisions to those in authority over you and spiritual authority was you went to the front after the service. We called those invitations. Sometimes they're called altar calls. And so we always sang a song at the end in which people would come to the front and some would come to let folks know they receive Christ or be baptized to join the church. And some of you may come from environments like that. And so we stood for the invitation and I just made a beeline. I said, this is what we do. I'm going to go tell the pastor. And we had so many pastors, but I went down to the front and I met some altar workers. And this is so rote and ritualistic to them. They said, what'd you come for, young man? I said, God's called me to preach. Fill this card out. Like, okay. You got to register, I guess, right? I don't know how that works. So I filled the card out, gave it back. I sat down and they did their thing. They give the cards to the pastor who would read all the cards every service. So-and-so came to trust Christ today. So-and-so came to join the church. So-and-so's a new member today. So-and-so is here to get baptized. And we baptize every service afterwards. And so they came to my name. Todd Stiles is here. He says, God's called him to preach. Stand, young man. So I stood up. God's called you to preach. You know, you don't, do you say, yes, I think so? I, I was like, yeah, I'm good with that. Like, it was pretty clear. You never see. That's how it went. It changed my life, though. I mean, every decision from that point forward, for the most part, there were a few exceptions, but for the most part, every decision from that point forward was about this compulsion I had from God to preach. Some have asked me, Todd, did God speak audibly to you? And I say, no, it was way louder than that. It's hard to explain the immediate sense of urgency that I began to feel. A few months, maybe a year or two later, I was at our kitchen table, and that call that was initialized was galvanized when I read 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It's my favorite verse in the whole Bible. It has been since that day. I don't know how I stumbled across it, but I was just at the kitchen table reading. I think I was writing a message which was probably horrendous and terrible. It was alliterated, but it was probably horrendous. I knew you'd like that. But for some reason, I was reading 1 Thessalonians and this verse where it says, and, and we thank God that when you received the word, you did not receive it as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which effectively works in you who believe. I was like, I get to do that? I mean, that's my first thought. Like, I don't have to be ingenious or clever or smart or like, uh, I just got to deliver your word. And I literally said, I can do that. I can go to school. I can learn. I can, I can be a paper boy for you, Jesus. I can just deliver the news. I have no problem with that. And man, the, the urgency again began to increase. The intensity began to deepen. And I just had this sense like, this is what I want to give my life to. I want to give my life to teaching the word to God's people. I changed some things as a senior, took some language classes, went to college, 
in that vein and for that purpose. That call was officialized when I got ordained. And the ordination is not something we do a lot around here, uh, but it was a whole day long of examinations and then a service at the end in which they bring a lot of men forward to prayer over you. And there was like 60 or 70 men who laid their hands on me. And I have never sensed the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit like I did that evening. Never. I mean, I, I, again, this urgency and this compulsion to teach the Bible to God's people, it, it was uh, it, it overwhelming would be an understatement. I was literally drenched in sweat. I think I cried for two and a half, three hours just straight. It's hard to explain again, but these are, this is all in my head. I'm driving. We're approaching South Bend just a week and a half ago. And I'm like, God, yeah, you did all this in my life. What do I do with this when I feel so short of where I need to be? When all those urgencies and resolutions and commitments and things you feel strong about, sometimes they just come out the wrong way. And the Lord just, man, he brought a shepherding touch to my life. And he said, Todd, just aim for one goal. Christ be magnified. And be willing to sacrifice and, and stick with your people. They'll stick with you and hang in there and help them and they'll help you to adopt the posture that at the end of the day, it's the result that matters, not the details. It's Christ being magnified. And so I just sense in my heart, God, I'm going to do that. I'm just going to stay put right here. You, me, our elders, and we're going to keep plodding along to one goal, Christ being Magnified. I commit to you to bring the word of God to bear upon your life. I don't have any great knowledge or tips or wisdom, but I have got an inspired revelation from God, your creator. And it shares with us his plan to redeem a people to himself and to help them adopt the posture of Christ being magnified. I will serve and work to see your progress and join the faith. I will. I want one day to be able to say to you, I would rather die and go be with Christ, but it seems I'm more needed here. So you know what? I'll stay put. I'll stay alive. I don't know if that day will ever come. I'm letting you know this morning that my heart beats for you. My heart beats for this book. My heart beats that together. We will dive into it, learn it, live it so that Christ is magnified. Amen. That's what I want Anki to see in First Family Church as a church so centered on the word that we would actually say, hey, Ankeny, for us, it's a win-win. Life or death, it doesn't matter. Christ is magnified. That's the aim.